Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm your host, Elise Shelger, and I'll be stepping in for Charlene while she's on vacation for a bit. Our guest today is Dr. Danny Milliken, Director of Clinical Services at Children's Hospital of Orange County, or CHOC as it's more commonly known. Danny is also still the Director of the Mental Health Inpatient Center at CHOC Children's, where her work focuses on trauma-informed care. Welcome, Danny. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Amazing. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and about Chalk? Yeah. So Chalk is a pediatric healthcare system, and we provide care both inside a physical hospital with around 300, over 300 inpatient beds. And then we also provide care closer to patients' homes as well with uh, loads of outpatient support. Our mission here at Chalk is to nurture, advance, and protect the health and well-being of children. And my part in all of that really has focused for the last four and a half years at getting our inpatient mental health center um, up and running. And um, it's been really quite an exciting journey. And I'm really proud of you know what we've been able to pull off here at Chalk. Um, it's been it's been really great. Well, we are very proud of the work that you're doing and. For those listening, Danny is actually the director of my department, so I have been blessed to witness her leadership and compassion firsthand. Would you tell us a little bit about the mental health inpatient clinic at Chalk and and really what instigated the opening of this facility? Yeah, so uh, our Sharice Marie Lahir uh, Mental Health Inpatient Center opened April 24th of 2018. So we're almost four years old now. I came from uh, Columbus, Ohio to help open that facility. I've been a psychiatric nurse my whole career. Actually, since I was six years old, I wanted to be a psych nurse and that never changed. And so uh, when I got into mental health, I realized there's this really huge disparity of care. Um, The way that care is provided in some mental health facilities is just not really of high quality. And that's for a lot of reasons, not because people don't want to provide high quality care, but there's a lot of barriers to being able to do that. And so early on in my career, I really realized it takes somebody who's really going to kind of push the envelope and see how we can change the way that care gets provided, not only in the system that you exist in, the patients that you're caring for, maybe as a frontline nurse, or the system that you're working in as a leader, but also I really set my sights on how can we change the way that care is provided across the nation. And so when I came from Ohio here uh, to California, you know, the biggest difference is we have immense community support here. And our CEO, Kim Kripe, and our CNO, Melanie Patterson, uh, really believed in wanting to do mental health differently. And uh, that's really what brought me here, because I saw this as an opportunity to say, hey, let's kind of throw out what we know about um, mental health nursing in an inpatient setting, and let's rebuild something that's really beautiful that focuses on evidence-based practice, as well as, you know, uh, just treating kids like humans and giving them compassionate and empathetic care. And so when I came, we uh, we didn't have any inpatient services for mental health uh, treatment on an inpatient side. And also in Orange County, there was zero inpatient beds for kids under 12. 
So it was important that Chalk, being this pediatric leader in our county and in our state, that we say, hey, you know what, we're going to provide services that nobody else is doing. So we take kids from three years old all the way up to 17 years old. We're an 18 bed inpatient mental health unit. And you know, the kids that get admitted to our unit, it's kind of like uh, the easiest way to describe it is saying like, we're the ICU, we're the intensive care unit of mental health. So um, you really have to be in a, in a serious crisis to be able to be admitted into this level of care. There's other levels of care that we offer that are, you know, intensive outpatient programs, we have therapy, we have psychiatry appointments, things like that. But in order to make it onto the inpatient mental health unit, uh, you have to be really experiencing a crisis. And so that can look different depending on the kid's uh, presentation. But we take kids who are suicidal, kids who are anxious, um, bipolar, kids experiencing psychosis. We have, uh, you know, intermittent explosive disorder. We've got kids with bipolar disorder, kids on the autism spectrum. So it's a wide range of diagnoses. Um, a wide range of ages, and then of course, an incredible amount of diversity. And so when you have, you bring all of those kids into one space, um, providing care needs to be really flexible. Um, and we need to have the ability to both provide care in what's called a milieu, but then also provide individual care. And so that's what's really cool about my unit. You're really used to seeing nurses walk into patient rooms, provide care, and then walk back out. But on the inpatient center, we actually bring all the kids out of their rooms and provide care in what's called a milieu, which is basically like a community and kids get to learn from each other. We have lots of groups that get facilitated. It kind of looks like a school day where they go from class to class to class. We have the same thing, except for our teachers, quote unquote, our music therapists, art therapists. We do have a full-time teacher. We have psychologists, social workers. We have child life specialists. We actually have a resident dog that we just brought on who's a huge part of our programming. We have nurses, mental health assistants, uh, psychiatrists, nurse practitioners. So we have all of this huge diverse group of people um, coming uh, to, together to kind of provide this interdisciplinary treatment plan for a child and their family uh, while they're on our unit. So it's really cool and, and it's important to realize that we're just crisis stabilization. So we're looking at like a three to five day length of stay um, versus, you know, long term residential, which looks at weeks or months or even years. Wow. Well, it's such an incredible advancement. And I'm so proud to know that Chalk is meeting such a critical need for these kids. Uh, it sounds like four years of really changing lives. So congratulations to you and your department. And I'm happy that the children have you. You mentioned that some places lack the ability to provide this certain quality of mental health support. And do you mind sharing your insight on the importance of the quality that's provided to support the pediatric population specifically? So when you look at the medical side of nursing, uh, we all know that there's all of these quality indicators and benchmarking systems that have been put into place to prevent patient harm from happening, right? And so um, things like when you're looking at CLABSIs or CAUDIs, all of that is nationally benchmarked data. And everybody knows when you have less of those, you have an increased quality of care. For mental health, there really isn't those big quality benchmarks uh, that say, hey, this is what 
quality inpatient mental health care looks like, especially when you're talking about children. And so, of course, one of the biggest um, you know, indicators that people speak about is seclusion and restraint rates, right? Because there's this huge stigma around mental health, um, especially mental health nursing that's honestly very much furthered by Hollywood and the shows that come out like, you know, when you're looking at uh, way back in the day, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Nurse Ratchet, and people think that that's what mental health nursing is. And unfortunately, um, they're terribly, I mean, fortunately, they're terribly wrong in that, you know, pediatric mental health nursing is about connecting with kids and helping them work through really hard points in their life. So, you know, one of the big indicators that people point to is seclusion and restraint rates. And, um, you know, when you look at seclusion and restraint, everybody will say, yeah, of course we wanna avoid using those. Uh, but the data really shows that 40% of kids that go on to inpatient mental health units are being secluded or restrained. And so that's a huge problem, right? Anytime that we're uh, limiting the movement of a child or you know, placing them in a locked seclusion room, that's incredibly traumatizing, not only for the patient, but also for the staff. It also increases the risk of injury to the patient and to the staff. And so we wanna avoid that at all costs. And everybody says, oh yeah, of course, we wanna decrease those rates as much as possible. Um, but there's no national benchmarking data out there that says this is what uh, the average rate is. Nobody ever shares that data. And so it's really hard um, as pediatric mental health nursing across the nation to say this is what quality looks like because nobody really talks about it. Um, now, here at Chalk, we often talk about our uh, seclusion and restraint rates. We are striving for zero, and we have had uh, two restraints in the last two years. So when you look at the national rate that exists out there that we're able to find, you know, you're talking about 40% of kids having those higher level of interventions happen. And in our, in our unit, it's actually less than 0.5% of kids um, or less than 1% one, one of 1% of kids are, are being placed in seclusion and restraint. And so we are proud of that. However, we still wanna to strive to get to zero. <clears throat> so anyway, long story short is essentially, there needs to be national conversations that are structured around what does quality care mean? And just because you're not using those high level of interventions also doesn't mean that you're providing high level of care because you could be utilizing, you know, an, a lot of uh, PRN, you know, antipsychotic medications, which is, you know, available to use if you need to, but only if it's clinically appropriate. And is it clinically appropriate every time? You know, that's that's for everybody to kind of talk through. So. I think, you know, also the programming that you offer, the way that you structure your programming is everything being founded in trauma-informed care. All of these are questions that, you know, pediatric mental health nurses really need to stand up and say, this is an important conversation that we all need to have so that we can change the way that healthcare is provided across the nation, as opposed to just saying, this is how we've always done it. So that's what's okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much for pointing out some of those misconceptions portrayed in the movies, for example. I think that's really valuable. And to hear that no restraint usage is the goal is incredible and chalk can really lead the way in this change. You did touch on how treating a child's mental health uh, condition is different from treating adults. 
what, what attributes would you say are necessary in pediatric mental health nursing uh, for nurses specifically? What would you consider most conducive to these kids healing? Well, you have to understand a few things. One, the traits that we look for in psychiatric nurses to come and work on our unit is your ability to be flexible, to be vulnerable, to be empathetic and compassionate, and to realize what your role in this child's life is. A lot of um, people really struggle when you're providing care to kids with the line of, you know, provider, like healthcare provider versus parent versus friend versus mentor. And so you have to kind of draw those really clear, be able to draw those clear therapeutic boundaries. And I think the apps, I can teach everybody how to pass a medication. I could teach high schoolers how to do seclusion and restraint. That's not the skill of psych nursing. And that's what people think is the skill of psych nursing. And really there's no skill at all in having to physically regain control of a patient. And so when we hire nurses, I can teach them everything they need to know. What I have a hard time teaching and changing in somebody is their ability to be compassionate and empathetic and their comfortability with being vulnerable. So like a really good example of, um, you know, interview questions that we ask is, you know, if a patient, we needed a patient to go to group or, you know, take their scheduled medications or whatever the case is. And the kid says, hey, you know what? You give me a bag of Cheetos and I'll take those meds. What's your answer? And a lot of times there's nurses that are like, I would not give them the Cheetos. I can't do that because I first you need to take the medicine, then I will give you the Cheetos. And on this unit, our philosophy is, what are you going to lose if you give them the Cheetos and they don't take the medicine? And the, the answer is we lose a bag of Cheetos, but we gain a whole lot of trust with a kid. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not about the Cheetos. It's about a kid who feels like they've lost control of what's going on in their life. And so they're trying to hold on to that control and any way that they can. And it's manifesting itself in these random you know, quote unquote demands or, uh, you know, requests and for nurses to be able to break down their own um, control issues and be able to look at a child and see what they really need at that moment and be able to deliver care in that way. That's really what trauma informed care is, is all about. And so that's kind of the, the traits that we look for is somebody who's willing to give the Cheetos. Um, somebody that's willing to be flexible and provide individualized care to kids who are at sometimes the lowest point of their life. And um, what's really cool is being able to instill hope into them. And, you know, you think of nurses saving lives when you think about CPR and, you know, ICU nurses and emergency room nurses. Um, but psychiatric nurses save lives every day through the words that we're using and the hope that we're instilling in kids, because all it takes is one person to say to a child, you're worth being alive um, for them to be able to have just an ounce of hope. So that's us sometimes. And that's really uh, what I love about mental health nursing. Well, that is such a sweet and touching answer. I, 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 my heart goes out to to, to your nurses who are providing care to these kids. It's definitely a, a sad um, area within nursing and specifically within pediatric nursing and 
we are very grateful for those nurses with, with that kind of heart. So let's talk a little bit about trauma-informed care. Uh, to start, could you just explain for our listeners what this involves? Yeah, so trauma-informed care, where you kind of start with this is always ask people like, what do you think about when you think about trauma? And a lot of times people think car accidents or you know, um, you know, gunshot wounds or big medical events like a heart attack. Um, and, and that's true. But the trauma that we're talking about is like abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect. We're also talking about, um, you know, maybe you're, you're witnessing violence at home. And so that kind of trauma impacts you for the rest of your life when you experience it as a child. And we found that out, you know, uh, back in the day, Kaiser did a really great study that has really changed the way we look at uh, adverse childhood events. So a really good place to start learning about trauma and how it impacts children is by looking at the ACE study, which is adverse childhood experience study. And so this was done back in the 90s. It looked at like 17,000, 18,000 people and asked them a lot of questions. And so some of those questions are, you know, do you have you experienced abuse? Have you witnessed violence in your home? Do you have somebody, uh, is your mom or dad in jail? Things like that. And what they found was that the more times you answered yes, so the more adverse childhood experiences that you had, the higher likelihood of you know different uh, disorders and, and issues that would follow you through the rest of your life. So for example, if you had four or more yeses or four or more adverse childhood experiences, you have a three times more likely to develop lung disease or to be in a smoking adult. You're 4.5 times more likely to develop depression. You're two times more likely to develop liver disease. You're 11 times more likely to use IV drugs. You're four times more likely to have intercourse by age 15. And people with six or more adverse childhood events can actually die 20 years earlier than those who have none. When you're looking at our population, we're looking at one eighth of our whole population have four or more adverse childhood events. And so a lot of people are like, okay, well, you know, trauma, you know, I'll have people say, Danny, my parents got divorced and, you know, I turned out just fine. And that's wonderful because what's traumatic to you doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be traumatic to me because it has to do a lot with the support system that you have around you, uh, your cultural beliefs, your religious beliefs, lots of, you know, uh, do you have a school support system in place? Do you have friends? Do you have people that are, you know, bullying you? There's lots of things that kind of go into the impact of childhood trauma. Um, and it doesn't mean that because somebody has experienced trauma that is similar to yours, that it actually is in fact similar to yours because of, of their life system that's set up around them. The impact of childhood trauma is vast. So it impacts your cognitive abilities, your brain development, your behavior, your physical health, emotional health, your mental health. Um, the way that you uh, relate to people. Sometimes you have difficulty forming relationships when you've had a lot of um, adverse childhood events. Maybe you're socially withdrawn or have poor self-regulation. Um, it actually, there's neurobiological impacts of trauma 
that um, end up, you know, changing the way that your brain is structured and formed from a young age, and then that follows you through the rest of your life. And so one of my favorite quotes about trauma is first trauma happens in your life, then trauma affects your life, and then trauma becomes your life. And people will say, whoa, Danny, I'm not okay with that quote. You're basically saying that I'm a victim for the rest of my life. And that's actually not at all what we're saying. If you look at something, you know, that we all, many of us have experienced is 9-11, right? First 9-11 happened and it affected us in so many different ways of our lives. But one of the very small, but talked about ways was airports, right? So almost on 9-12 of 2001, you walked into an airport and it was a brick wall of security, right? Before then you could take your grandma to the airplane, you could eat dinner back there, go shopping back there. So first that trauma happened on 9-11, then it impacted our life when we showed up to the, um, to the airports, right? And people were really upset by that. But now in 2022, if you're like me, you get to the airport two, three hours before you stroll through, you, you know, you're going to have to take your shoes off or, you know, wear things that are easy to move around for the security officers. It's become a part of our life. It doesn't mean we're victims of that for the rest of our life. It just means that you adapt to be able to survive. And so when we look at that in terms of like patient care, um, one of my best trauma-informed care examples is, you know, I had a patient uh, really early on in my career when I was a frontline nurse. And I was a second shift nurse. I was brand new. I came into work and uh, every day she was in a crisis. And so, you know, the, the nurses who had been there for quite a while, of course, made that about me um, as the young nurse. Like, oh, she doesn't do this on first shift. You know, she really just, it's, it's you guys on second shift. It's, it's your problem. You know, sometimes nurses really like to eat our young. And so I took that really personally and day in and day out, I'd come in for a report and she would be in really massive crisis where there would have to be restraint usage. Uh, we'd have to use PRN antipsychotic medications. Just was really this awful cycle. I couldn't figure it out. And one day, I, you know, I was able to have time to talk with her and we talked for hours, honestly, and it took a long time, but it came out, um, you know, we started talking about how much she loved the piano. I love Elton John. So she would, you know, play Elton John on the piano for me. It was incredible. She started doing these math equations that I was like checking on my calculator because I couldn't even do them in my head and she was getting them right. She's so intelligent and so just this really cool girl and she's 21 and you know i couldn't figure out what's what's going on every day and it turns out that you know she was being uh, abused by her dad after school every day for 12 years and so in ohio we had an eight hour shifts and i was coming into work around 3 p.m 3 p.m is about the time that you get out of school and so her body was in this cycle of crisis it had nothing to do with me as a nurse or uh, the the first shift nurses or second shift nurses it had everything to do with the trauma that she had experienced. So once you have that information, you then need to take it and change the way that you provide care. So what we did is we set up this great structure of having first shift sit with her um, and uh, play the piano or do watch a movie that she liked to watch. Second shift would come on and overlap for half an hour with them, um, and then. Uh, first shift would carefully peel off and second shift would sit with her for another two hours to get through that really hard time of her day. And we never had another crisis. 
There was never another restraint. There was never more medications given. And it was all because we got information and we changed the way that we provide care to her. That's what trauma-informed care is all about. Well, that, that's a perfect illustration and a, a very heartwarming one. And you did an incredible job there of getting to the bottom of it. And when it's suspected that a child has suffered a significant trauma, um, but the patient is unwilling or maybe unable to discuss it, um, I, I, I see that, that building that trust is the most critical component, but how is that handled by nurses and providers when you have a hard time making that breakthrough? Yeah, so that's, you know, when we think about nursing in general, we think about universal precautions, right? We, there are certain things that every nurse in every corner of the hospital does to protect themselves and protect their patients against various things, right? We wash our hands when we go in, we gel in and gel out, we put gloves on when we're starting IVs. These are things that we don't do um, maybe if the patient you know, was immunocompromised. We do it with everyone, right? And so there are universal precautions that you can utilize with trauma as well. When we go back to the ACE study, the ACE study is saying, hey, one eighth of our population has four or more adverse childhood events. Just having one adverse childhood event impacts your life. But we're talking about big traumas, a lot of people. And so the assumption that all nurses should be making is that everybody that's walking into our hospitals is experiencing, has experienced some form of trauma. And you, I mean, look at, we're in an emergency room. Just the fact that we're, you know, coming into a hospital or we're getting cancer treatment on, uh, you know, the hemog floor or my kids having seizures on the neuro floor. These are all traumas and we're in a really hard part of their life. And so treating everybody as though they've experienced trauma would be um, the answer to your question. What can we do? Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Changing the way that you think about patients. There's a lot of times where we think, oh, if these, if this family would just, you know, discipline their child, things would be different. Or if, you know, this kid would just stop having the destructive behavior, um, then it would, all of this would be okay, you know. We need to eliminate those behaviors, but really, as healthcare providers, we need to provide opportunities for patients to heal from their trauma. So instead of thinking what is wrong with this patient, we want to start thinking what's happened to this patient. And you're like, oh, is, is the way that I think really changed the way that I provide care? Yes, it absolutely does. The way that you think about somebody absolutely translates into uh, the quality of care that you're providing. The other thing that we can do is change the wording that we use. One of the biggest things I hear nurses saying is this patient is manipulative or this family is manipulating the system. And so they aren't. What they're doing is they're just seeking alternative methods of getting their needs met. So, you know, when patients kind of feel like they're like, you know, out of control of their situation. For example, we had a kid in our emergency room who was aggressive and, you know, was was threatening to be physically violent with nurses. And so they called a code and we all showed up and this kid's kind of pacing around. They had told him he's gonna be coming to the mental health unit. Um, 
when you know you think about a mental health unit and you've never been on one you're thinking of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something really scary so he was in this kind of like fear um experiencing so much fear and, and nervousness about it and so when we talked to him it's like hey man what can we get you and he's like i want a subway sandwich <laughs> and it was like okay no problem like five dollar foot long man we got it there's there's a subway right across the street i'm like tell me what you want you know and all a lot of people were looking at me like danny you are not getting this kid a subway sandwich and it's like you better believe it we're getting it and we walked over there he said extra onions no mayo make sure there's not ice in the dr pepper i mean all of these demands about this sandwich and what everybody thinks is he's manipulating me to get what he wants but really what he's doing is he's just trying to feel like he's in control of something and so when he got the sandwich he literally hugged it got in bed laid down we wheeled him up to the mental health unit we never had another aggressive problem with him so it's not about giving in or letting people win or being manipulated it's about meeting kids where they are and giving them um, things that they need and then lastly, of course, what you do really matters. So you can change the way um, like that you're providing care to every patient that you interact with. One thing I know on medical units is uh, there's all kinds of IV poles and feeding different things that you have to hang up to feed. And, you know, it's all connected to that patient's body. And so when you're looking at an IV pole, you should be looking at it as though it's that patient's body. If it's connected, it's all one thing. So before you go in and you just start, you know, dialing in numbers and making changes and grabbing things, you should be walking in, introducing yourself. I'm Danny. I'm your nurse today. I'm going to be touching this over here because I'm going to change, you know, the rate or I'm going to be doing these things and explaining what's happening before it happens um, and never just touching without asking. Um, those are some really, you know, important things. And then I always like to just end with offering as much hope and inspiration that you can, because like I said, um, and, and, and like you kind of alluded to, you're not always going to know when somebody has experienced really hard traumas in their life. You're not always going to know when somebody is weighing the pros and cons of dying by suicide. They're not always going to feel comfortable to share that with you. And how many times have we been in rooms where nurses are staring at a computer screen asking, are you safe at home? Um, as the patient is four feet away, uh, you know, not even making eye contact. So sit down, make eye contact, connect with the human that's in the bed, and really offer them some hope and inspiration. Because even if they leave and you didn't ever know that they were contemplating suicide, you could save somebody's life just by reassuring them that they are worth being alive. And, you know, Jean Watson always says, caring is the essence of nursing, right? And uh, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, maybe this one moment with this one person is the very reason we're here on earth at this time. And so if we approach every single patient that way, uh, you're bound to save somebody's life and not even realize that you've done it. I love that. That's, that's so, so true. And all of your examples are just such amazing reasons why why you are in the position that you are, to be honest. And I just think that every part of this trauma-informed care could be carried over to all, all areas of nursing. Um, this is how we should be treating every patient um, as an individual. And we don't always have to be right. We don't have to win the argument. 
we have to try exactly. to meet these kids' needs. And that those were great exactly. examples. And I think what's important too during this specific time of life is realizing that it's also the way we should be treating each other. And there's a lot of you know incivility in nursing and, and struggling uh, with with interpersonal relationships with other nurses and other disciplines in, in different settings. And I think if we could all just look at each other, have a little grace, have a little empathy, we're all going through so much outside of work and with COVID uh, so much inside of work. And so it's, it's, it's okay if people have hard days and uh, understanding that as coworkers and fellow nurses that we're there um, to care for them too. Yeah, I, I think that this also just resonates with me um, relating to the idea of holistic care. Uh, there, there's an understandable expectation throughout the spectrum of care that nurses take this holistic approach uh, because nurses are typically interacting with patients on a personal level and have the opportunity to spend the most time with each patient in comparison to other providers uh, that they may meet with or be treated by. And re regardless of the reason that a patient or a family is seeking care for their child, uh, it's important that nurses take the, these personal details, including traumas into account. Um, and, and there's such a great impact that that can have on, on their healing, as you mentioned. Yeah, and you don't always have to have the right answers. You know, I think nurses get scared to have conversations with patients because it's like, what do I say if they say something that I'm makes me uncomfortable? Like, what do I say back? And it's like, you don't have to really say much of anything other than, wow, I don't know what to say, but I'm really glad that you shared that with me. You know, it doesn't have to be these like profound therapeutic conversations where you're processing and doing therapy. It can just be another human connecting with them. And so many nurses say, I don't have time. I don't have time. There's too much to do. I'm not talking about 20, 30, 40 minute conversations. I'm talking about two minute conversations, just sitting down and making sure that they know that you're seeing them as a human being and not as a diagnosis or as a procedure or whatever is going on, but that, hey, I'm Danny, a human, and I see you, Sally, as a human in the bed. And I'm here if you wanna talk about anything. Um, it just, it's, it's easy things that we can do that can change kids' lives. Yeah, just non-judgmental listening sometimes goes a long way. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Well, one final note to touch on, just so that our listeners get the opportunity to, to know a little bit more about you. You you recently were promoted to a new position, another position. You now hold two titles uh, within the organization. Can you just tell us a little bit about your new role and what that entails? Yeah, it's been exciting. You know, our CNO, uh, Melanie Patterson's always trying to give us opportunities for professional development and just, you know, this opportunity has been something that I never thought I would do. And it has been incredible because like I said, I've wanted to be a psych nurse my entire life, not only my career. And so my, my whole focus of the last 13 years of my career has been mental health. And I feel very comfortable with mental health and uh, feel, feel very comfortable with nursing leadership within mental health. But this new role has really expanded me into different like operational and logistics um, areas of the hospital. So we're talking about nursing supervisor group, uh, patient placement center, the language services folks, child life, 
um, the float pool, uh, staffing a whole hospital during one of the hardest times of staffing a hospital that has existed in so long. And so it's been this really exciting challenge for me to get to learn about um, the operations and logistics of nursing throughout the whole organization, not just focusing on mental health. And it has allowed me to really get to know some brilliant and incredible nurse leaders. Um, our supervisor team, I feel like, is the most unsung heroes of our hospital. They are like the glue that binds us together. And um, all of you guys are just have, it's been incredible to learn from the number of years of experience and uh, areas of expertise and, and things like that. So it's really opened my eyes and allowed me to grow professionally in a way that I just had never really thought I would. So it's been, it's been really cool for sure. Well, thank you. Wow. Danny, this has been a truly enlightening experience for all of us and your words resonate so deeply as a pediatric nurse myself. Thank you so much, Danny Milliken for joining us today on ACNL in action. And thank you for what you do every day, leading us all as defenders of childhood. Thank you so much. This has been great. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email us at social media at acnl.org and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook at ACNL Nurse. You can also rate us and drop a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. ACNL in Action is presented by the Association of California Nurse Leaders with new episodes on the first Friday of every month. To learn more, visit acnl.org. Thank you all for listening.